Well, good morning, Mount Calvary Church. We are now a week into, into Advent, a week into our Advent series. Uh, hopefully you picked up the, the devotional that we're giving out to families as our gift to you, that you would be able to focus on Jesus this month as we prepare and look forward to and anticipate the birth of Jesus. Um, we're a week into our Advent series that we're going to be calling Rejoice. Uh, this month, we're going to be looking at the Christmas carols that we sing every Christmas, these carols that we love, and we're going to be looking at what is the biblical foundation of these carols. And the hope is, as we close each service with whatever carol we're discussing, is that we will be able to sing and to worship with these carols with a deeper appreciation of the words that we're singing. And so that's our hope uh, this morning, that's our hope these next couple of Sundays as we uh, get closer to Christmas. Um, and so this morning, uh, our song, in, in my opinion, is probably the most iconic Christmas carol. Now, I know that's a matter of opinion, but I, I looked it up on Google. It was at the top of a lot of lists of, that I found online that this is the most iconic, most loved, most sung, most cherished and meaningful Christmas carol of them all. And yet, while most Christmas carols are pretty easy to sing, this is also at the same time the most difficult carol there is to sing. There is no high note that has been more butchered across the pews of this nation than the high note that is at the end of this song. I don't try to hit this high note unless I'm alone or with my family pretending to be Josh Groban or David Phelps. It is not an easy note to get to, but perhaps you know the song that I'm talking about this morning, the carol, O Holy Night. And so let me be clear from the start that this is not just a powerful song because of this this massive crescendo at the end of the song, but this is a powerful song because of the clear presentation of the gospel message within the lyrics. And so the beauty of this song, just like we sing in the song, will leave you on your knees because of the clarity and the truth of the gospel in the song. And so this morning, that's going to be the song that we look at I'll read the two verses of the song, though we're only going to focus on the first today. And then I'll read our scripture for the morning, which is Matthew 2, 1 through 4, and verse 16. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary soul rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppressions shall cease. Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we. 
Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory, yet the poor proclaim. His power and glory, yet the poor proclaim. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night, when Christ was born. Matthew 2, 1 through 4. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod heard, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray, God, that you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives as we think about the word, as we think about the gospel message as sung about for centuries in O Holy Night. God, we come to you this morning some of us discouraged, some of us stressed, some of us overwhelmed, some of us perfectly content. Yet wherever we come this morning, God, we pray that your word and the truth of the gospel, that it would cause us to come to you in praise and worship and submission and adoration. Work in our hearts and our lives today that we would leave this place changed by the truth of the gospel. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 175 years ago, this Christmas in 1847, the Catholic Church in a small town in France asked a man named Placide Capot to write a poem. Now, Placide Capot was a wine merchant. He was a beloved poet. He, was, he would occasionally attend Catholic Mass but even still, even though he was not a consistent attender, the church asked him if he would write this poem. And so he reluctantly agreed, and, and as the story goes, he got into his dusty coach headed for Paris, France. And he opened up his Bible in Luke chapter 2, and as he read the, the story of Christmas as recorded by Luke, he tried to imagine himself witnessing the birth of of Jesus that night. And as he, as he imagined this, and as he took this ride, by the time he got to Paris, he had written Cantique de Noel. And when he got to Paris, and as he kind of looked over his work, he, he realized that he wished that it could be put to some music, that the poem alone was not enough. And so he enlisted the help of a friend, a fellow composer, by the name of Adolf Adams. Adolf Adams was a, was a very famous, uh, he famously directed orchestras. He studied in Paris. He was well known, except that he was also Jewish. And so he didn't celebrate Christmas and he didn't celebrate Jesus as the Messiah, yet he still agreed 
to put music to this poem that Capot had written. And so that Christmas Eve at Midnight Mass in 1847, what we know to be O Holy Night, which was Kintik de Noel, was sung for the first time. The church in France, after that Christmas, uh, welcomed and loved and this so- loved this song. It became very popular until Capot left the church, walked away from the church, stopped going to church at all. And at about the same time that Capot walked away from the church, it was discovered that Adolf Adams was of Jewish descent, that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so as the Catholic Church kind of uncovered this background to the song. They sent out a memo. They talked to the people in the church. They issued a statement that said, we will not be singing this song anymore. It is unfit for our services. And so they banned it from being singing. Yet the people wouldn't stop belting out those high C notes. They kept singing them in their homes, wherever they met, The song continued to be sung because it was so beautiful, so popular, um, and so loved by the people. And about 10 years after the fact, John John Sullivan Dwight discovered and translated the, the French song into English, and that's how we got the song here in the States. And so what a what a history for a song written by a poet who walked away from his faith, composed by a man who doesn't even believe that Jesus is the Messiah, condemned and silenced by the church, yet the gospel message of the song would not be silenced. I mean, there's a lot of irony in the history of the song. I mean, that a man who walks away from the church and someone who is of Jewish descent can speak so beautifully about the power of the gospel. It's ironic And so for us this morning, we do not want to continue this thread of irony in the history of the song, O Holy Night. We want to sing the song and understand the meaning of the song and to have experienced the power of the message of the song. And we don't want to just sing the words, but we want to be reminded today of the gospel that is clearly written about in the song. And so that's my hope this morning, is that we would have this reminder of the gospel as discussed in this song. And we'll see the gospel need, the gospel power, the gospel response, and the gospel question. And you can see the need right at the, the gospel need right at the beginning of the song. The third, the third line of the first verse, a line that you've probably sung a thousand times. Perhaps you've wondered, what does this actually mean? Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. You know, we don't sing a lot of songs about our sin. It's not the message that we harp on all the time at Christmas. It's not the reminder that we want to have, especially in the season. But this this is what we find here in the song. The world, past and present, you and me, those who've gone before us and those who will go after us are long laying in sin and in error. I mean, what a picture that is. It's a vivid picture picture of how things are going. 
like laying down in a bathtub, like laying down in bed. We're not just committing sinful deeds or actions. We are long laying in it. Like when the water just comes over you or the blanket comes around you, that's the picture of what sin is doing in our lives. That it's not just some outside force, some decision that we make from time to time because of circumstances. That's not the picture here. It is the rule of life. It is the way we go. We lay in it. We lay in it. And it is. It's an overwhelming thing to consider, but it is one that is certainly true. This is the picture that Paul paints of what sin is in our lives. In Romans chapter 7, our sin goes deep. Goes deep. It's not a deed that we do on the outside, but Paul tells us in Romans 7, 17, sin lives in me. It lives in me. It dwells in me like we dwell in our homes, like visitors dwell in our houses. The picture that Paul paints of our relationship to sin is that we, we lay in it. And it's not just that we lay in sin. The picture Paul paints is that sin lays in us, that it touches everything around us. That it is a resident of our hearts and our lives. And theologians call this the doctrine of indwelling sin. And it is unpleasant. But it is a resounding truth, not just of this song, but of the scripture. Ecclesiastes 9.3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Jesus calls the heart the fountain of sin. He calls it the treasure chest where we sock away evil. I mean, there is a consistent message that sin is deep within us. We lay in it, and it lays in us. And not only that, but it is, it is the inclination that we have to sin is mysteriously powerful. That is, we kind of wrestle with life and pursue Jesus, it is hard to wrap our minds around our inclination to sin, that we are in this, all of us, your pastor included, this constant battle to fight sin, yet often we lose. That one moment we can be passionately pursuing Jesus Christ, praying and studying and being generous and selfless, serving our families, being kind to others, whatever you want to add to the list, that moment in a second can be followed up with the most egregious sin where dead leaves in the, in the wind, all of a sudden greedy, lusting, mean, and ruthless people in a moment. How can we, how can we explain it or understand it, right? Our best moments, how quickly can be followed by some of our worst moments. And the, the explanation is, sin lays in our hearts. Our imaginations and our dreams and our choices 
and our passions and our understanding of right and wrong is entangled with the sin that lives in us. Paul says it in Romans 7, 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Even in our best moments, if we were honest, we would all recognize that sin is right there with us. The word that the Hebrew writer uses, that I just used, is that we're entangled in sin. We're told to throw off the sin that so entangles us. As I was thinking about this concept of of our hearts being entangled of sin, I went back to this summer where we went to the Chesapeake Bay and we caught an eel. You ever caught an eel? Yeah, they're slimy, they're dark green, they're very they're like snakes but really really fast, much faster than a snake. Doesn't it sound pleasant? Slimier than a snake too. And so we caught this eel off of our dock in the bay and we pulled it up and to get it to the dock, I thought it would be a good idea to use a net to get the, do- the eel to the dock, but that was a big mistake. This little squirmy thing was, was flailing around, twisting and turning all through the net. It was a muddled mess. The holes in the net and the eel became completely one, and it was this big knot and twist of eel and net. And I'm looking for Ashley to come and help me. And all of a sudden, she just disappeared. And so what were our options as we thought about what to do with this eel and this net? I'll tell you what our option was not. There was no untangling this. It was such a disaster. So many knots, so many twists. There was no, there was not a moment we thought, let's try to navigate this eel and untangle it so that we can let it go. No, we had one option, cut the net. These two are so intertwined. We cannot divide the two. And this is a picture of what sin has done to our hearts, in our hearts, and around our hearts. It is a tangled mess. Our selfishness, our desire for control, and pleasure, and materialism, and lust, whatever it may be, has become all twisted in our hearts that it touches just about everything. And so what happens next? What happens next is we consider that our heart is full and tangled in sin. Well, the Bible talks talks about it with a metaphor in James 1.15, a metaphor of birth. Probably not the birth story you were thinking you'd hear today. James James 1.15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And because of sin that dwells in our hearts, these desires that we have that are sinfully inclined in our hearts, what happens after that is it gives birth to sin. We make sinful choices because of our sinful desires. It's not hard to wrap our minds around. And then what happens? Little Johnny Sin grows up. This is the picture. And it causes death. Sinful desires leads to sinful choices. And what is the result of our sinful choices? It is death. 
good things die because of sin. And again, this, isn't, this is not a difficult point to express because we've all experienced sin messes everything up. Any sin, pick the sin. The small sin of telling a, a lie here and there. Pursue it and feed it and watch it destroy your life. Watch it destroy your relationships and your marriage and your job. Sin of selfishness or gossip or lust or envy, again, starts in the heart. But then you feed it and you live in it and it will cause death. And so it's no wonder in this song, that's the first few words of that third verse, that we long lay in sin and error. It's no wonder then that the word that is used to describe the result or what happens because of this is the verb pining. Long lay the world in sin and error. Pining is the word. Now I have to be honest. I told you last week and some of you laughed at me and questioned me that I didn't know who Parson Brown was I thought it was a color, and you told me, well, you should know that was a pastor, and you laughed at me. Well, it feels, I need to admit to you this morning again that I've never really understood the word pining. Feels good to say it. That I've, I've seen this line, and I think of pine trees, and I don't really think of what this word actually means. It's not a word that I use very often. And so this week I looked it up. What is pining. And I was amazed at the definition of this word. I'm going to start using this word. It means to suffer because there's something you yearn or ache for that's not yours. To suffer because something you wish you had, you can't have it. It's to hunger, to thirst for something that you can't quite reach, that carrot you can't quite grab. It's to languish. And I realized this is the perfect word to follow the fact that we have long lay, that we long lay in sin and error. We pine. We languish. We ask ourselves, is this what life is all about? Is there not something more than the death that is caused by my sinful choices because of my sin-tangled heart. I was out walking the other day, and I met a gentleman who was walking his dog. And as we started talking, he was pining to me. I mean, he was very sick. He had just gotten back from the doctor's office and had get, gotten a really bad diagnosis. He was an older man. And he was depressed. He lost his family. And he was telling me how he'd lost his sons to jail, to drugs, to death. And we just happened to, to bump into each other and start talking. And he starts to cry. He, he's pining, languishing at the death of what sin causes in our lives. Is this all that there is. But listen, the gospel doesn't stop with our pining and our languishing. The song continues, and you can see it in the very next line. 
till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I mean, is there a better line in any Christmas song that we sing? In our pining and in our languishing, he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I mean, have you ever felt worthless? Have you ever felt ashamed, not good enough, like you don't have enough value? I worked as a student pastor for over 10 years, and I cannot tell you the number of times students, I mean, who had everything, great families, great grades, they had great success in life, and they would come to me, and they would say, I am worthless. I'm not popular enough. I don't look this way, look that way. I didn't make this team. I didn't get into this college. And they would say, my value, I, am, I have no value. I am at the bottom. And I think this is what the man walking his dog would have said. I am valueless. I'm sick, I'm alone, and I have no money. But what happens here in the song with the, the message of the gospel is that here we see the gospel takes this understanding of value and just completely flips it on its head. Popularity and family and health and money and success in the gospel are no longer the standards of value. That's not the way we determine value according to the gospel. Instead, what we learn in the gospel, it's clearly what's, what's given in this song is that, that value is determined by the amount of effort taken to go get something. So I don't know if you've ever thrown away something that you intended on keeping. We did this just the other day. We threw away a coupon that we had gotten from the Summer Library Reading Challenge to go play putt-putt, and we wanted to go play putt-putt, and so I'm looking for this coupon that I had just seen. Well, of course, we determined it was in the trash can somewhere, and I go out to the trash can, and of course, the trash can is full of trash bags, and we don't know which bag it's in, and so what do I do in that moment? I'm a pretty frugal person, but I'm not digging through the trash. $5, $10, let's go play putt-putt, and I'll pay to play. We let the coupon go, right? Because the coupon didn't have enough value for me to get in the trash to go and look for it. But then you compare that. You're going to see a, a, a theme here with me. When I lost my wedding ring a couple months ago, okay, a completely different situation. I turned our house upside down looking for this ring. Go to the trash can. You know, you always think maybe it's in the trash can. What do I do? I'm in the trash can. I'm in the trash bags. This ring, it maybe doesn't have a ton of monetary value, but this ring is valuable to me. It is worth me getting in the trash and in the backyard and in the grass and all over our house to find it. I came up to the church offices. I opened the dumpster. I'm like, I don't really do not want to get into the dumpster. I go into my office and I finally found the ring. It was a bookmark for a closed book that was sitting on my shelf. So there you have it. Found the ring, finally. Value is determined by the effort and energy spent to get it. Okay, that's value. 
God the Son left his glorious throne in heaven to come down to the slums of this earth for you. This is the new basis of value. Jesus came to get you, and he left heaven to do it. The song says, Jesus appears. He appears, and it changes everything, and it changes everything about our understanding of value. And as I thought about the word appears, I realized this is probably my least favorite word in the song. There's nothing wrong with the word. Jesus did appear. He was born. He came at just the right time, and he showed up. But he didn't just appear. Yes, he appeared as a baby, but his appearance was just the first part of his rescue mission. The word that I like, it's kind of an action word, a, a strong movie word, is the word invaded. Jesus invaded. He, he appeared, and then he invaded the world. Why? To topple the domains of darkness, to burst through the doors of despair and darkness that we have been stuck, stuck behind. Jesus appeared and he invaded and he rescued and came after you so that in him you can have forgiveness. That even though you pine, even though we languish at the death of the sin that is caused by our sin indwelt heart, we can know that Jesus came and invaded and it changes everything. It's the story or the message of Colossians 113, which I think is a beautiful Christmas text. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. We languish no longer because He came to get us, to free us, to rescue us. And so this, all of this, leads to our gospel response. And it is the gospel response, what, what happens in light of the truth that we are needy, pining away that the power of the gospel is you have unmatched value. It leads to the response of the song, a thrill of hope. The weary soul rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We are thrilled. We are thrilled. That's not a word we use in association with Christmas or the birth of Jesus, is it? When do we use that word? When we go to Hershey Park, we get off a ride. I mean, we're overwhelmed. Our breath is taken away because of this roller coaster. Yet this is the word that's perfectly placed here. That our understanding of our pining and languishing and his rescue and invasion and setting us free should cause us, cause us to rejoice. We had nothing and now we have everything. We laid in sin, and now we lay in the grace of God. And so what is the response? The response is, our weary soul rejoices. But this isn't the response of everyone. And we see that in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, the verses that we've read, that it's not how everybody responds. What do the wise men do in verse 2 of chapter 2? They have come to worship. They've come to rejoice. He is the one. He is the rescuer. He has come as a baby. But the very next verse, we see this 
very strong contrast of responses to Jesus. While the wise men have come to worship, Herod has come to rage. He is completely troubled and threatened by this baby Jesus. And so what is his response? His response is, kill them all. Kill them all. He's a threat. He's a thief. He's come to take everything that I have. Get rid of him. And so it's here that we see right next to each other what we still, what we still know today to be true about Jesus. Jesus causes extreme reactions. Either you will worship him because you recognize you were stuck and entangled and freed, and so now you worship him. Or the other option is what Herod does. You oppose him, ignore him, live your own life apart from him. And so we see these two responses over and over through the life of Jesus. You either worship him or you hate him, and you try to get away from him. The Jewish leaders, the Romans, the religious leaders, to the point that they crucify him. And this leads us to the gospel question. What will you do with King Jesus? Like this is the truth of the gospel. That's just a few lines in this song. But the question for you today is what will you do with it? Who will you be like in the story of Matthew 2? Like the wise men who come and rejoice and worship, or will you be like Herod? Will you resist him and run from him and ignore him? This season, Christmas, is, is the time for us to recognize and to remember we languish, yet he has come. And he has rescued us and he has saved us. And so now we will rejoice. You know, I was talking to the older man with the dog. And this is what I told him. I said, your value is not based on your bad health diagnosis. And your value is not based on the bad decisions that your kids have made. And it is not based on your church attendance. And it's not even based on the bad choices you've made consistently through your entire life. Instead, your value is solely based on the fact that we have a king a king who stepped off of his throne and he came to this world and he invaded it. He was the king who went to the cross for you. And I said to him, how can you not believe and give yourself to this kind of king, a king who gave everything to be with you? And as we talked about it, we wept, he wept, I wept, we prayed. And it is my prayer for you today that as you languish and pine in your own sin, whatever that may be, that you would come to the king, believing in him, trusting him, holding him, so that you could rejoice with the wise men and with those in this church. And so I ask, is there anything that is keeping you from placing your trust and your worship in Jesus right now? If not, pray this prayer with me as we close. Heavenly Father, I recognize my sin, the sin that I lay in, and the sin that lays in me. And I ache for something more. 
Yet I believe that you appeared as a baby. You came to the earth to rescue me from this bondage. That you are the king who went to the cross for me. The king who rose from the grave for me to give me a new lease on life. And I give myself to you, the one who gave himself to me. And so, Father, we pray, all of us, God, that we would be overwhelmed and thrilled at our understanding of all that you did for us in Christ Jesus, that he appeared and he invaded and he's rescued to the point of his death on the cross. God, and I pray that as we belt out these notes and sing this song, God, that it is an overflow of rejoicing and gratitude and thrill because we know where we'd be without you. And so, God, I pray that as we sing this song and we sing these words, God, that you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.